Well, Father, we come in Jesus' name, and we have come to meet with you, to worship you. In the power and, and through the filling of your Holy Spirit, we ask that this time of looking into your word would also be a time of worship, but also a time for us growing in the grace that you have given us in Christ Jesus, that we might know you, that we might know ourselves, that we might know the sufficiency, the all-sufficiency of your grace and power in our lives as we walk with you day by day in this world. So bless, Lord, your word to our hearts and allow it to do its transforming work so that we might be one with you and you with us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Let me ask you, by, by what means can we know whether our faith in God is real, that it is strong and enduring, and that it will last into eternity? Well, most would say, and rightfully so, that faith in God is grounded in God's grace as a gift. It is born by the Spirit of God inside every chosen sinner as he or she hears the gospel of Jesus Christ and is saved. But how does God build this trustworthiness among us as believers in Christ with him? How do we come to know and experience and grow spiritually mature by faith in Christ? Well, we know from the Scriptures in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1 and 6, it says this, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And that without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he that comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. But it also tells us in Romans chapter 10 and verse 17 that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And all those things are true about faith in God because they are for us to know and understand from the scriptures. And yet one primary way that God has chosen faith to mature so that we fully trust God in his word is through life's trials. Let me ask you, have you faced trials? Maybe today you're facing a trial right now. And will you face trials in your future? Without any doubt, I can say with a high degree of certainty based on the Scriptures that believers in Jesus Christ living by faith have faced trials, 
are going to face trials and will in the future have more trials. How will those trials come into our lives? Well, trials come through pain and suffering. They come through poverty and loss. They come in the way of disaster or by deception, through prejudice and through persecution, even disease and death. Since trials seem to be one of the primary ways that faith matures in us trusting in God and his word, then we need to hear and pay attention to what James is saying about life's trials. You see, James wrote this letter to Jewish believers that were living in the midst of trials. They were driven from Israel by a persecution to live among pagan nations, nations which did not know the God they worshipped, nor did they live by the moral values that are found in God's word. And these Jews were driven from their homeland, and they fled from a form of persecution because of their faith in Jesus Christ. But it only plunged them into another set of persecutions because of their faith in Christ. You might say that the listeners of this letter were a people without a home. They were refugees living as aliens in another land. And James writes this letter under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as a shepherd. It is a pastoral letter. It is to encourage disheartened believers facing difficult times and to give them godly principles to guide them and to help them through tough trials. And these principles are timeless, and they are applicable for all believers in every age as we seek to live for Christ in this world. James breaks up these first 18 verses into three different areas, three different principles, I might say, that will steer and sustain believers through life's trials so that they stay strong in faith. The first uh, set of principles is found in verses 1 through 8 of this letter. Paul, uh, James is telling us how trials actually benefit us as believers in this life, that there is much to gain from God through the trials we face. 
The second principle is found in 9 through 11. And there James tells us that we should never think that we are alone in facing the trials that come into our lives. That though we must tackle them in faith, if you will, it is important for us. In fact, it is a necessity that we set our gaze on the goal, which is Christ, who has suffered and delivered us from our sins. And the third principle is found at the end of these verses where James is telling us how we as God's people are to be rewarded by God because we continue to trust him through the outcome of our trials. That there is a guarantee by God for his people who persevere by faith in life's trials. Well, let's look at the first one, found in verses 1 through 8, how we can gain from God through the trials we face. And in this respect, he uses what we, are, we would normally call a cause and effect. For instance, if you eat food and you do not exercise, guess what? You're going to gain weight. Or if you have a heavy rainfall and you have poor or no drainage, you're going to have a flood. On a more spiritual side, if you do wrong, you're going to bear the penalty for that wrong, as in Colossians chapter 3, verse 25. Or, as Paul says in Galatians, what you sow, you will reap. Well, here... The cause and effect is actually switched. We're dealing with the effect of the trials first and then the cause behind it. The effect is to produce endurance so that we can become perfect and complete. That's what he says here in verses 3 and 4. He says very clearly here in verse 3, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And then he says, and let endurance have its perfect re result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You see, what he's saying to these believers and to us today is that trials cause our faith to be tested to be stretched, to be refined, and to be proven so that our faith in the Lord is perfected. So that we take on in that faith the virtues of an enduring patience and a resilient trust in God and in God's will for our lives. It's like that refining that God uses through trials as gold is refined by fire. 
And God, James wants them to know that indeed, as we go through trials, God is doing that, that work of causing us to gain an endurance so that we might be perfect and complete in him. Peter also talks about this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, where he says, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Well, how does this refining go? How do these gains reveal themselves in the lives of believers? What does this maturing of faith look like in us? Well, I think one of the places that you can go in the Scriptures and see it is the examples that are found for us in the hallmark of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. Look at the lives of those believers Look at the things that they were tried in and how they came forth like gold for the Lord. The two words that James talks about, that of being perfected and complete, the first one is teleos. It gives the idea of maturing, fully maturing. The other word, holo. Kleros in the Greek gives the idea of being complete or entire. And I liken it to um, putting together a puzzle. And the idea of the puzzle is that you put the puzzle together so that every little piece finds the right spot so that in the end we have a perfect picture of what that puzzle was intended to show. Well, likewise, if you're not into puzzles, maybe you're into cars and engines. In the same way, because of the design of that engine, each part of that engine needs to be put together according to its specifications so that when it is put together, it purrs like a kitten and moves your car along effortlessly. In like manner, God uses trials in our lives so that we might be put together, so that we might reach the design that he has for us in Christ and the character of Christ and the functions that God wants us to be displaying as we walk with him in Christ. Well, in verse 5 here, you'll notice that as we're going through trials, there may be within us a lack of wisdom and understanding what God is doing. And James says to us, if any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. 
who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. You know, trials in our lives actually cause us to realize that we don't have it all together, that we don't know everything that needs to be known as we're going through trials. And therefore, it's a good time to pray and ask God for wisdom. Trials cause us to see our lack, but also our need for God by his grace to give us the wisdom that we need to guide us through the trial and to motivate us to pass the tests. This was true in the life of King Solomon when he was first uh, coronated as king of Israel. We didn't read part of the story intentionally because it was not a smooth transition from David to Solomon. As you know, if you read 1 Kings, the beginning of it, there was another brother who tried to usurp the throne. His name was Adonijah. And he took it upon himself to gather a lot of people as well as the king's sons together so that he could be crowned king. And David, being very aged at the time and weak, was not aware that this was going on until his wife Bathsheba came to him and told him that indeed this was going on. And Nathan came right behind her to collaborate her story that indeed Adonijah was trying to take over the place of king of Israel. And David had already made a promise that indeed Solomon would succeed him and that he would be the next king of Israel. And he told Nathan and he told Benaniah and he told Bathsheba to go and take him on his own donkey in order that he might be anointed king of Israel. And it is soon afterwards that God has this meeting with him through a vision, through a dream, and he gives Solomon the opportunity to ask whatever he wants. And it's in that context of 1 Kings chapter 3 that we read, indeed, that Solomon asks God for his wisdom so that he might justly rule the people of God because he cannot do it himself. And God grants him his request in abundant measure. And we read about the wisdom of Solomon in the Proverbs, such as Proverbs chapter 2, verses 3 through 9. And I'll only give a part of it, but he says this, for the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. You see, the Lord permits us to go through trials <clears throat> so that our faith walk with him will become closer and more dependent 
He promises, yes, he does promise not to place more on us than what we can bear. But he also promises us the wisdom to go through it in faith and to pass the test. If you want to know God's will in trials, all you need to do as a believer is to ask him in faith. He will answer. He wants to give you his wisdom. But James reminds us in this passage that we do need to ask in faith without any doubting. You see, Doubt short-circuits faith. Doubt causes, indeed, faith to be negated. So do not doubt, because if you do, you will not receive anything from the Lord. As James tells us, we would be a double-minded man, unstable in all of our ways. When we do have God's wisdom given to us, we begin to see this world as God sees it, from a divine perspective. And we need to know that God will give us his wisdom generously, simply, without reservation, if we just but ask in faith. Well, What are the realities of receiving God's wisdom? Well, I I think that's shown in verses 9 through 11 and following. First of all, we'll have a true sight of why the trials come upon us. We'll have a right view, if you will, on life and on humanity. One of the things that he makes clear here in this passage is that believers receiving God's wisdom— go through trials with a proper view of themselves and life itself. He points out that a poor man who's in Christ, God will raise him up to his lofty position as his redeemed child. He'll be adopted into God's eternal family. Likewise, for the rich man in Christ, God will humble him to his rightful, lowly position to help him see that he is not the one in charge, but that God is. And he'll be able to see his ruin without faith in Jesus Christ. And he'll turn to Christ and trust in him alone. Because, as James says, the riches and achievements of this world will pass away just as the flower of the field when it is scorched and dried by the hot sun. And thirdly, our guarantee in trials is one in which God will give us a right view of the choices of life. He says there in verse 12, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trials. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. What a tremendous promise 
that when we persevere through trials and are found approved by God, we will receive from God the crown of life which he has promised to those who love him. When I had the privilege of going into Kenya to visit some of our missionaries that we supported as a church family, one man um, I had a discussion with as we were riding on safari there in Kenya. His name was Gideon. He was from the Maasai tribe, one of the largest tribes in Africa. And uh, we got on this idea of family and talking about children, and he steered me to this whole idea of men becoming adults. And I'm not recalling how that discussion went, but I do remember distinctly that indeed the Maasai tribe still practices this rite of passage into adulthood with the men on their tribe. And guess what that rite of passage is? They send them out into the wilderness by themselves with primitive weapons, and they have to go and kill a lion and survive a number of days in the wilderness and come back with the evidence of that kill. Trials, beloved, are God's rite of passage to faith maturity for us as believers in Christ. The trials that you face and I face are for our good. They help us in every way to have a right view of what our course in life is supposed to be. A right view on what life is supposed to be like as we walk by faith and persevere through trials. And a right view of what our choices are. As Paul said there in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, he likened this rite of passage by faith as running a race, a marathon, staying on course, focusing on the goal, free from all hindrances to win the prize, the victor's crown, which the Lord he says here in James, has promised to those who love him. But what happens if you decide not to go through the trial? There is a censure of lapsing into sin and accusing God, and it brings death. That's what he talks about here in verses 13 through 16. But if you fail the test, being deceived, there is no one to blame but yourself. Don't blame God when you're tempted. Don't shift the blame on God because you have lusted and fallen into sin. God cannot be tempted by evil, and God does not tempt anyone. God has no capacity for wrong or evil. What is the source? 
of causing us to fail life's trials, life's test. It's our own sin nature. The Satan, the tempter comes, yes, and allures us away, sponsoring evil, but it is our own proclivity, our bent to sin that causes us to fail the test. That's what he says in verses 14 and 15. Each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. And when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Two pictures quickly are here. One is the picture of a hunter trapping its prey. It comes in a process in two ways. First, there is the allurement. If you will, that which incites our sinful lusts. And it draws us away from living by faith so that we might seek, if you will, an instant gratification of our fleshly desires. And the second one is the trap itself. That alluring bait leads us into the trap that appeals to our fleshly cravings, that arouses us to sin. And before we know it, it hits us. And we have acted on our lustful passions and have fallen headlong into sin. Yeah, the bait can be from the tempter, but you cannot say that the devil made you do it. Not so. It's you not staying in your faith walk with the Lord and allowing the lust of your flesh to take hold. Second picture he gives in these verses is this. It's one of giving birth. James likens our lust as that appetite to sin as something in which it conceives the birth of sin. And when it's fully grown, it brings death. This is probably the only picture that we have in the scriptures where abortion is the right thing to do. We need to abort the tendency of being drawn away and enticed to sin by our fleshly lusts. He says here, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. And then he makes it clear to us in verses 17 and 18, and it's this. Everything good and right and true comes from God. He is the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. He's the one who brought us forth by the word of truth so that we might be, as it were, the first fruits among many creatures. God wants us to succeed. God wants us to go through trials, to pass the test, and to see his grace and his wisdom be applied to our lives so that we might become mature in our faith walk with him. There is gain through trials, and it comes from God who will show us the right course for our lives, even through trials. 
there is indeed God's truth that allows us to have a right view of ourselves and humanity. And there is the guarantee that when we go through the trials and we persevere, there will be a crown of life for those who love him. We must never forget, though, that our reward, this crown of life that is supplied to us through God by his grace and through him working in us through trials, that it comes at a great cost because the Lord Jesus first wore a crown of thorns. It was pressed upon his head, and his head bled, and it was pressed down by evil men who adorned him in a purple robe and gave him a reed as a scepter. They mockingly bowed before Jesus and cried out, Hail, King of the Jews, as they repeatedly beat him and spat on him and cruelly led him away to be crucified on the cross for you and for me. Only he could pay that awful price for the penalty of our sins. If you have never received God's gift of the forgiveness of sins, by repenting and turning to Jesus Christ as your Savior, I encourage you, whatever your life trials are, I encourage you to turn to him today. Just as there are times when we lack wisdom, we need to see our lack before God of having our sins forgiven apart from Jesus, and we need to call upon him. Whoever will call upon the Lord will be saved. Amen.